1: I'm Anne, and with my host Bill, I would like to pay my respects, or we would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drug, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery stories and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, today we're talking to Dan uh, from Smart Recovery Australia and uh, I'll hand over to Bill to introduce Dan.
2: Uh, hi, Dan. Welcome to the show.
0: I'm good. Good to be back on the show, Bill.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for coming back on. Uh, it must be about a year ago, I suppose, since we spoke to you first.
0: Yeah, there are there, i did not check my calendar, but you're probably right.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it was about March, yeah. So Dan's um, going to talk a bit about Uh, his recovery, and also talk a bit about Smart Recovery Australia and the work they do. And also, we're going to talk about an April challenge that they have on, or coming up in April, I should say. Uh, It's called Take On Addiction, and it's helped helped smash the uh, stigma associated with alcoholism and addiction. So, Dan, I I think we'll start just talking about uh, your experience and the sort of things that caused you issues... Growing up, and I guess your introduction to drugs and alcohol, and where that took you before you decided to seek help.
0: Yeah, I mean, instead of listeners that tuned in last year or uh, listened to the podcast. um, Yeah, I got kind of uh, made certain decisions around my early teens, 13, 14 year old, um, to I guess step into was kind of a party rave culture in the nineties, um, drinking, smoking pot, acid, ecstasy, and just going out pretty much partying every night after school or um, soon when I left school to try and get more money to fund that lifestyle. Um, as i said to you before, Bill grew up in a fairly stable home. So it wasn't as if I'd experienced any significant trauma or uh, events in my life that led to that. But having two older brothers um, paving the way for me and, and certain maybe unhelpful decisions uh, were a bit of a, a mentor and not, not in a not positive way. Um, yeah, that uh, really kicked off about thirty years old and spiraled into about three years of a uh, you know, cycle of addiction, uh, ending up in heroin and methadone for about six years as well. So a real challenge uh, during the 90s, nearly 2000s to try and kind of break away from that life.
2: Yeah. So do you want to talk about um I guess your progression into those things, that the sorts of things that you did that led you down that path?
0: Yeah, well, as I said, there was um it was just a bit of boredom. I grew up in a bit of a sleepy village, um, you know, and there wasn't much in the community available. You know, it I was always I was always involved in soccer, you know, and different things and we we had a a few things that we'd entertain ourselves with, you know, uh, growing up, but there wasn't a lot of support for, for teenagers, a lot of opportunity really. for them. uh When we kind of started getting influenced into high school, and um, around 12, 13 years old, your horizons were broadened slightly in high school, and uh, we were quite uh, interested in music. As I say, in the 90s, it was quite a bit of a rave dance culture back then. and so when music was quite an interest, and it is still an interest to me now, I play and I play guitar and sing. And so even though back then uh, picking up a guitar, I didn't really consider that music if it wasn't 150 beats a second and you know jumping about a nightclub all night, it wasn't music as far as I was concerned. So I guess that lifestyle um, it introduced you to other things, you know. So it definitely started with alcohol, just a Friday night after school asking the big the big older lads to buy you alcohol at the, at the shop and then smoking pot. And then, but just that rave culture really introduced you to a lot more uh, poly drug use and uh, that become every weekend, you know, uh, that was a cycle for many, many years.
2: Yeah. I, I think I've asked you this before, but um what did your parents think as you were sort of following your brothers at an earlier age? Were they concerned?
0: Probably had no idea, mate, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they They had a, an idea about my brothers at that point um definitely my mum uh my dad as well to a extent didn't know much about my lifestyle um you know i was uh kept myself to myself you know when you at your teenage years you know seemed like you're uh you know, a, a god figure to, to some people was your dad, you you realize you don't want much to do with them sometimes and you you just kind of separated parted ways and, and hang about with your friends. So they didn't really know that much. Uh, my mum maybe a little bit more, but I, I really kept my cards close to my chest and showed them all I wanted them to see for really the whole period of addictive uh patterns through that ten years. They didn't know much until I'd broken away from that and told them in some way. So
2: Yeah. Um, so what about going to school then? What about your friends? Were they, did they have um, similar experience to you, or uh, you know, were they um, as attracted to drugs and alcohol as you were?
0: Well, I found in high school um, I tended to not really want much to do with the same people at my age, uh, and I think about all the people as the subsequent years started to unfold. They were always older kids. They were always in the year above or had left school, so. I guess maybe that influence of my brothers and and perhaps me feeling like there was some maturity of the people I hang around with. I'd always wanted to spend more time with older people. Um, So I definitely found me not spending much time with the people of my year in school. Um, And really it was, yeah, after school. Um, I definitely, there was moments. I remember even just going on my lunch break, picking magic mushrooms and, Taking a few, going back to an English class, you know, like it was just, but other than the people thinking I was a bit strange acting in, in, in my English or maths class, uh, they probably didn't know much about it. And I couldn't even tell you people in my year at school who would be involved in that lifestyle it was always two or three, four years older than myself.
2: Yeah. Um, what about underage drinking then? Um, I, I think that was fairly prevalent for what I understand. in, in England at that time, uh, that you could get into places quite easily. Um, so, did you do much of that?
0: Well, um, yeah, I grew up in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right, Bill, I'll yeah. forgive you. But, uh, my uh, English. but growing up in Scotland, uh, it is a culture. It is a culture. And um, as I said to you, my first influence of it, you know, what we're talking 12, 13 years old. And I remember it probably started off with cigarettes, actually, trying to get uh you know older kids to buy me cigarettes, you know, um on the way to school or whatever, before school or after school. I even used to buy twenty packs of cigarettes and sell them at school for fifty a dollar each and it was an entrepreneurial kind of start of my life. Um but drinking, yeah, look, it was a couple of bottles of wine on a Friday night, and you know, you're just standing outside the local shop looking for someone that might be willing to buy you something you know buy you some drink or something and then having fake IDs and stuff like that you know getting finding ways you can get made fake IDs and stuff to try and get into um so a lot of it was just out in the park drinking until I got to the point where I might have had enough bum fluff on my face uh and, and i got a fake ID. I might get into a pub now and again but uh probably not until I was hitting 16, 17, you know, that I'd probably not look anywhere remotely old enough to get into pubs. Yeah. Although I was, I did DJ at a nightclub when I was 16 years old. So, uh, but maybe because I wasn't a, a patron of that, I, that was a lie, I'm not sure.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: so I guess moving on you know, into your late teens then, uh, so how did things change when you left school?
0: Well, I left school very early and uh, there was a mixture of reasons. My parents were talking about moving away and down to England and I was like, it's no way, you know, I've got my mates up here and all sorts. But at that point, point things started kicking up uh, and uh, I, I needed more money to fund that kind of excitement and lifestyle at that time that I thought it was. So I left school um, what would be considered year 10 um, over here, I think, and, uh, yeah, probably just... 15 I think just turning 16 so you know just getting a job any old job and then that funded not only me uh sharing a flat with my brothers and my parents moving away naively thinking my brothers will look after me at 16 years old but that then end up getting worse um then I was just working all week to go out partying Friday Saturday Sunday night and just get absolutely out of your face you know and then have to Bring
2: yourself down and function again on Monday morning. Mm. So, you know, earning earning enough, uh, living in a, a house with older people, doing doing what's considered to be a lot older than uh, your age. Did who who were you mixing with? I guess uh, were you mixing with your brother's friends?
0: predominantly i mean i don't even know if you can call them friends when you're in that yeah. lifestyle i mean definitely there's people still that i'm in contact with that i'm new that, that were our friends my brother's friends but yeah they're always older folks there was some folks my age as well but when you start living in that lifestyle the the risks associated to who you uh, are, are involved with are greater obviously they tend to be a lot older, a lot more tougher, a lot more scary, a lot more dangerous kind of situations you place yourself in. So that flat that we had, for instance, became quite an intense environment to be in as a 16-year-old, you know, I would consider a 16-year-old boy, really. Um, and when you've got machetes and coshes and knuckle dusters down the, of your, um, down the side of your lounger because you don't know who's coming through your door at any point, you know, that's the kind of Risk you put yourself in, and when you open that door and those people come in, whether it's the drug squad trying to bust down, or whether it's people that are just wanting to use or you know selling drugs back and forwards, uh, you're putting yourself in risky situations. you know, quite intense situations of not knowing who will pull out a knife or it, all such, and you just kind of survive. But at 16, I thought, man, this is quite exciting. You know, it wasn't until I think back how scared you probably would have been you know, in that situation
2: yeah the average person would have been very scared i'm sure yeah. um so then uh, after the flat then did you go out on your own
0: uh, well look, the thing was is that this is where we want to talk about stigma at some point as well and yeah. and, and what we're trying to do in smart company but i was always able to hold down a job on some level because i needed to function at that stage so and this is what i said to you about my parents I always showed them that I had a job and had a roof over my head. So as long as they saw that, they didn't know the truth of it. And the truth of it, I was falling apart and I was trying to just sustain some normal life. So um, when that house fell apart, <laughs> um, and by that time I'm talking 16 turning 17, heroin started coming on the scene quite a lot. Because I, I was considering myself a veteran of the raving DJing days at 16, you know, I gave all that up at 17 and then because you need to function um, at work on a Monday morning and you were high as a kite on Friday Saturday, you need to come down. So the choices of drugs or things I was involved in needed to bring me down to a point where I was not flying and I was able to sleep and try and get some work done. So that's where heroin and downers and all those kind of things came in. And, uh, you, you know, if listeners are <laughs> known heroin's extremely addictive. Uh, very quickly, you know, within a, a couple of weeks, that that can be you physically dependent upon it. Um, and that was the kind of lifestyle. And when I knew that, yeah, I'd have flats with my other mates and I'd be tossing on their couch or, you know, I'd be living in a caravan with my mates gardening us some random things um, and, you know, just functioning, trying to function keep that job held down is kind of my focus until the drugs really got to grip at me physically. Um I actually found out you can get methadone free from the doctor. I was like, yes, you know what I mean? Let's get to the doctor and get some free drugs as well. That'll top it all up, won't it? That'll, that'll keep me going and not me to spend much money. So using heroin and take methadone and then all the other stuff, just kind of start to get out of control, you know.
2: <laughs> yes, it doesn't sound uh, particularly attractive. Um, well, listen, uh, we might take a break there. Um, Anne's got a song queued up, so do you want to – Sit it in.
1: Yep, this is uh, Archie Roach and Sarah Storer doing their version of From Little Things, Big Things Grow.
4: Gather around people i tell you a story An 80-long story Of power and pride okay, British Lord and Invisalign Yari For opposite men An opposite ha-ha.
3: This deal was fat with money and muscle Beef was his business and Broad was his door Vincent was lean, and Spoke very little He had no bank balance Hard dirt was his floor From little things
4: Once they had gathered, the wealth of the land, daily depression grew tighter and tighter. Garenji decided they must make a stand.
3: They picked up their swags and they started off walking at Wadi Creek. They sat themselves down. Now, it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues stalking back at the homestead and in the town.
4: Now, Vesty Man said, I'll double your wages, seven quid a week you'll have in your hand. And Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages. We're sitting right here the we get out there. Well, Vestee Man Rod
3: and Man thundered. you don't stand a chance in a cinder of snark. Vincent said, if we fall, others right."
4: From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Now Vincent Lingaree Boarded an airplane Landed in Sydney Big city lights. Daily he went round Softly speaking his story All kinds of men from all walks of life.
3: Vincent sat down with big politicians. This affair they told him, it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. You people are hungry. But Vincent said, no thanks, we know how to wait.
4: Vincent Lingari returned in an airplane, back to his country, once more to sit down. He told his people that the stars keep on turning. We have friends in the south, in the cities and towns.
3: Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting, till one day a tall stranger appeared in the land. He came with lawyers, and he came with great ceremony, and through Vincent's fingers poured a handful of sand.
4: Much more.
3: How power and privilege cannot move a people who know where they stand, stand in the Lord.
4: From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things
1: 3CR's Trans Day of Audibility is airing
0: seven hours of trans and gender-diverse radio in the lead-up to the 2022 Trans Day of Visibility. Tune in on Sunday, the 27th of March, between 12 noon and 7pm, to hear trans and gender-diverse voices bring the noise to the Western gender binary. We'll be bringing you shows covering art, culture, politics, and everyday transgender lives. Towards a Transgender Day of Audibility. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au of audibility 2022
1: Welcome back to the Living Free Show on 3CR. 855 kilohertz on your AM radio dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you would like to listen to one of our many podcasts, then you can find us on your preferred podcast platform, or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. And uh, we're talking with Dan today about recovering uh, with the help of Smart Recovery Australia.
2: Uh, Dan, um, just wondering if you want to tell us a bit about um, why you eventually sought help and what sort of help you got uh, for your addiction.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for many years, uh, in that lifestyle, you didn't necessarily kind of think it was that wrong. (laughs) Um, It might seem strange to the general public, but it was just part of growing up, part of a rites of passage of what what was going on for myself and my friends and my brothers. I think when um, I started realising the job that I had and my boss started to notice that I was uh, skyping off school and skyping off the job and playing hooky and stuff and not really functioning very well at work he kind of pulled us aside and uh, had a wee chat with us and I was very fortunate actually to um, for him to be quite understanding because I just told him that I'd been up to no good and I'd been using heroin and I'm just you know, trying to get my life back together because you know, on a methadone script and stuff at that point, it wasn't technically true. Uh, I was on a methadone script, but it was just simply to get more drugs. But when I started realising uh, when I was losing accommodation and there was people around me um, that were experiencing pretty significant consequences, you know, there was um, a lot of people who ended up with hepatitis and different things when they were, you know, using drugs and injecting and all that. And then there's people losing their lives as well. People that I know, I started to kind of wake up and think, you know what, it's got to be a bit more to life. I can't really remember my guidance counselor at school saying that this is what uh, was the best option for me. So I realized getting back on track with work. So I did try and start to kind of pull back on stuff and try and just stick to the methadone and, you know, try and make a go at work. And I did end up finishing that apprenticeship. Um, Then I get dragged back into that life again you know, um, just a cycle for many years, I'd try to make it go of it, try to get my head screwed in, end up back, back into that lifestyle again and, and just that cycle, um, ended up, you know, you talked about England earlier, I did stay in England for a year, I uh, moved down there to try and run away because I was getting chased down by the police and also um, the banks and everyone I ripped off and uh ran away down to England, trying to get myself back together, got a job, got a flat again, but my brothers were down there, so it wasn't long before we'd get sucked into that life again, and then end up getting myself sorted, coming back up to Scotland, getting a job, getting a flat, trying to sort my life out again, and get sucked back into it, you know, so I went through a bit of a cycle, and, um, you know, there was an aspect in my life that might be very different to many others, but there was a, a what we call a spiritual awakening, an epiphany, and end up. Um, get involved with a lot of really great folks from a uh, local church and stuff. And that just really helped me get back on track. But um, I really needed to take the step of moving into a real recovery mode. So I actually um, moved away from Fife and uh, moved into, which was a, well, it was a church-run rehab, but it was a really, um, a really in-depth program, recovery around cognitive behavioral therapy, psychology, all that kind of stuff. I ended up staying in that uh, recovery unit for nine months. Um, and during that time, um, what I you know, thought many people would think it was a waste of your life, I saw an opportunity there and um, people around me saw an opportunity. Uh, and we will talk about stigma, but that was the first time I'd never experienced stigma. you know. Uh, and we can talk about what the stigma was leading up to that point, but having people really believe in you, having people see the potential in you, it really what gave me the inspiration, and strength to kind of and make a turn of it and turn my life around. You know. Um,
2: so having having contact with people who were helpful and supportive uh, is is really important. Um, so how did you um, how did you start recovering? What was the what was the first thing that you th- saw as a as a road out of addiction?
0: Well, if I can just take a couple of minutes to backtrack, because, you know, I think I think talking about stigma is a really important part of this. Um, and when I was in that lifestyle, I've had to reflect upon it even just today before I talk to you. You know, I, I ended up feeling stigma at work. You know, thankfully, my boss was very supportive, but my colleagues, and when I ended up leaving that job and trying to get another job, the same person I used to work with was working for this firm. And the interview went very well. And I was about to get the job. And then I think this guy stitched me in saying he's a junkie, he's on the methadone, whatever, and I didn't get the job. And then I can see that there was stigma involved in the community. You know, people around us, you know, you're a junkie, you're a waste, you're a drug addict, even the embarrassment of going to the chemist every single day and standing there in line people watching you take your methadone and stuff. You know, it was really hard to break out of that. The legal aspect of the police having all these... Opinions about us, and even though, yes, I was causing a lot of issues, Um, you know, when when the interventions come, it's really stigmatizing. The police obviously just tie you with a brush, and that's you, you know. Uh, Even within the medical, the doctors, the people around us, you know, my perception they just see as this waster that just wants your methadone and making any excuse to get whatever they want. Um, Thankfully, my family, because they didn't know about it, and my brothers did, and they were in that lifestyle. I didn't experience it in my family. But I think the reason being is when I was able to make connection with uh, people around us uh, before the rehab, because they were the people that helped me get to the rehab, and just really good, solid community members, See, church members, they were really just loving people, and they just saw me for what I thought I could be, you know, actually a real just human being who made some terrible decisions. And they've seen the potential for hope in my life in different directions. So that's what started to feel and experience, that people saw something within me that I didn't see myself. And when I went into rehab, that just expanded by a hundredfold. You know, the people that I'm going through things with, the people that are trying to care and support for me and trying to give me this vision of what my life could be like, there was no judgment, there was no fear, there was no stigma attached to that. It actually became positive because it gave me an education that you can't learn from a book so that's what platformed me into this career is when I started to experience that there was life beyond the stigmatizing labels and seeing you as a different person and a new identity a new purpose a new belonging to something different
2: uh yeah I guess we can also talk about labels um you know you know 12 step groups talk about being an addict and talking about being an alcoholic but um i know um smart recovery tends not to use those terms um but the terms are used by society a lot as you say they're in common use so what what's the alternative for a recovering person who has a problem with a with drugs or alcohol what what terminology is beneficial to them
0: It's always a tricky one. As you say, culturally and society, we're, we're we're told that these certain words mean certain things, don't they? And when we hear them, it evokes a response in us. Um, and when we talk about this campaign, we talk about take on addiction, people have asked, why are you using the word addiction? If you're trying to reduce stigma and like, because that's what society knows, that's the words they know. The difference being is I think what I've tried to and what I like about Smart Recovery is it's it's about detaching the person from that behaviour rather than being an addict or an alcoholic. You're Dan who has a problem with alcohol. And what that does is it just slightly just detaches a behaviour from the person itself. And I have found in my own life, if I was to continually call myself an alcoholic or an addict, when does that stop? Because I've come in contact with so many people that, you know, and I think AA 12 Steps, I've run AA and I've been involved in AA 12 Steps, so I'm always encouraging for people to go to whatever they want. I think these are all great programs. But I challenge people individually, not only society to change the mindset of addiction, but the individuals to change the stigma of their own self-stigma. Because if you keep calling yourself, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict and this and that. Does it hinder you from making different choices away from that life? Can it slow you down from finding a new identity and something different? And I find it can. Now, maybe in those early days I called myself, yeah, I'm a recovering addict. But at some point within those first couple of years, that mindset changed because I saw something in myself and people saw something in myself as so much more. And that smart recovery, we are trying to look beyond that to see the person that is not just making unhelpful decisions. You know what, Bill? We all make unhelpful decisions, you included. Yeah. And I'm sure if it's that yeah. here about things in your life, you may have cycle behaviours that are not helpful for you. You're not going to the gym. You're watching too much Netflix. You're eating too much. You're smoking. You're doing, you know, people can get involved in pornography. People can get involved in all sorts of behavior. So what we're trying to do is level that discussion to not just call yourself an addict. Yes, we're talking about taking on addiction, but we're taking on that mindset that comes with the community's understanding of addiction. And that opens the, the door for discussion. Um, but if it starts within yourself, within the person that individualizes in recovery, you're so much more than being an addict or an alcoholic. You know, there's so much more to you. And if we can detach ourselves from that, and call it an unhelpful behaviour or problematic behaviour in your life, you can change that. And I even upstairs before this interview, Bill, uh, and my wife's heard my story so many times, and I said to her, told her a little bit about what I was going to talk about, she said, Dan, I still conf- I'm still, i still astounded that I cannot imagine you are that person. And it's because I don't call myself, I don't call myself or label myself that I'm completely different Thinking, completely different choices, completely different lifestyles. I think it would be really strange if I met people calling myself a recovering addict still. You now, I'm 20 years down the track, but, you know, if we can help change that mindset, even from the individuals with experience recovery, not only them, then the community and the greater the greater society. You know.
2: Yeah, I guess in 12-step in it, it helps because you're identifying the problem that you're working on. Um, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Step one: admit that you're powerless over your addiction. Of course, admittance and awareness is the first step to change, for sure. Yeah. And I love the twelve steps. As I say I, I've developed twelve step programs as well. Don't get me wrong. But what I what I want the difference is between the mentality of that, which is which is good, because in smart recovery or wherever you need to admit that there's some issues going on in your life. But it's where you're not powerless completely. What you can make change. Uh, and a lot of self-sex is about spiritual powerlessness over a faith and a deity as well. But, you know, uh, and as I say, I've got a faith, so I'm not in any way disassociate myself with that. But what I would say is if people can look beyond this to be a disease, just a disease that it can be changed and it can be healed, it can be, your brain can be firing different ways, it can make different decisions. What I, One thing I would say, though, and it's really important, is a big part of the culture that I've found when people call themselves certain things is it brings belonging and there's a great peer support and smart and in 12 steps and all that so you're part of a belonging you're part of a culture that's meant to support each other and empower each other to make better changes that's great so I think people look for that they look for belonging and connection and sometimes they find it in those words because there are people around them that calling themselves alcoholics is actually acceptable it's fine But in society, it's a dirty thing. You're you're, no addict, you're dirt, you're you're no good. So they find belonging in that. So I can understand that identity is important. But at some point, we have to challenge ourselves to think a bit differently if we want to make long-term, lasting change, I think.
2: Yep. Okay. Well, so we might take another break. Uh, Anne's got another song queued up.
0: Thanks, Bill. This is
1: uh, Under the Milky Way, a version by Sean Kelly and Anne McHugh. (laughs)
2: When this place gets kind of empty The sound of the breath fades with the
3: light Think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight
4: And we're still talking about revolution.
1: On uh, Living Free today, we're talking to Dan from Smart Recovery. And Smart Recovery has got a fundraising challenge on. um, And they say you want to have a lot of fun, get fit and help, support a really meaningful cause this April. Join the 30-day Take On Addiction Fundraising Challenge sign up and walk run cycle or choose your own activity to raise money for smart recovery a global leader in mutual support services that empower people empowers people everywhere to take back control of their lives and gain total freedom from their addictions just go to takeonaddiction.org.au and start helping people everywhere Uh, now uh, this is the living free show as we said before on digital radio live streaming on 3cr.org.au streaming and we're talking uh, with Dan about smart recovery um, and so it's back over to Bill. Thanks Anne. Yeah Dan
2: I, I guess do you want to tell us a bit about the origins of the challenge and and how broad it is?
0: Yeah absolutely. I mean and just with smart I mean, recovery I know we've had a lot of opportunity on your show so far but it is a one group support program uh, mutual aid support program to help People make changes around problematic behaviour, and that could be alcohol or drugs, or pornography, or eating, or smoking, or Netflix and chocolate, whatever it is that people are finding they're struggling with. But what we did find that because um, smart recovery uh, is in 26 different countries, but it's probably uh, a little less known in the general community. Uh, around a lot of the AOD services in Australia, people are uh, they're starting to understand um, about smart recovery. But uh, we really wanted to partner with uh, quite an important um, campaign, really, together. And the founder of Dry July, which a lot of people may have heard about, is partnering with Easy Race to establish a bit of a campaign in April to try and just, not, not about funding as such, but about raising awareness of smart recovery and raising awareness of addiction. And that's why we're using the term take on addiction, because that is commonly known. In, in households, workplaces, and things like that. So we're trying to encourage people to take on their own challenge during April. Um, that could be running, walking, cycling. I'm actually doing 10,000 sit-ups in the month of April. Wow. And if you know me, the only sit-up I do is normally when I get out of bed and get back in the bed. Um, so that's going to be a challenge for me. I, I could give you a before and after picture of my, my stomach. <laughs> Maybe <not. laughs> No, thankfully, this is radio. You don't need to say that. Um, but it's really about um, engaging um, workplaces, engaging people that may, may have had some um, struggles either personally or in the family or even just wanting to support this because we talk about mental health quite a lot. It's become a little bit better that people, uh, less stigmatising to talk about mental health in general. Um, but addiction can be very deeply integrated in mental health. And when you actually look at some statistics, um, it's quite, it's quite uh, confronting when you look at um, how stigma can delay up to five or six years uh, when you're seeking help around addictive behaviours. You know, globally, it's 35 million people with substance use disorders, 107 million people with alcohol disorders, and one in 10 in Australians um, have some substance use disorder. But that's those that have sought help and have defined it as a disorder. We are talking millions and millions of people that are experiencing behaviours that are problematic. So we wanted to create a space where we can talk about addiction. And that word addiction, yes, can be stigmatising to some. But when you create a space to talk about it with the greater community and get them involved and get them active. And that's why we wanted to make a physical challenge. Because A lot of people that step into recovery want to make better choices and better decisions around their health goals. So um, using that as a catalyst to get people involved and get them doing these activities and it'd be a bit fun uh, engaging services to uh, encourage their staff to team build and try and raise awareness is much more uh, what we're trying to do here.
2: Yeah, um, I think it's really good. I guess, you know, you talked about all those people who are suffering from um, addiction Addiction behavior, um, but I guess if each each one of those probably affects five people. So uh, families and friends of people with um, alcohol and drug drug and food use problems. Um, it's really a quite a broad uh, range of people. So I understand smart also covers family and friends. So are they involved in in this sort of um, fundraising as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Anybody. I mean, anyone that you know really feels, uh, I guess, driven or motivated to want to support that cause. Because, as you said, it, it, it is a it is quite a hidden epidemic, um, and a lot of the time, the the, stati- the statistics only come out of those that engage in support or or go to doctors and things. So, family members and, and people that have have a, have addictive cycles that they're caught up in that don't engage them, kind of get missed out a little bit. Um, and, yeah, we run family and friends programs within Smart Recovery and worldwide, and that's about helping family members putting their own oxygen mask on before helping Jimmy, you know, with his issues. And it's not even about them telling Jimmy what to do. It's how do you manage your own well-being when, when Jimmy's trying to find his own way in life as well? And hopefully then they create that space and there's not a stigma even attached to the family unit that they can have those conversations that this is... Uh, and normalise some of the choices that people are making. Uh, unfortunately, that's where the stigma is portrayed in the media and different politicians and things, is that these people that are experiencing addiction are the homeless folks or the you know, the, 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 the dregs of society. But when you look at even the basic statistics of um, the people uh, work-related uh, absenteeism, it's billions of dollars that's impacting uh the work industry and that's not necessarily people that are identifying with any addictive behaviors they're just people that are binge drinking and going out partying like normal australians whatever normal is so you know i think there's a, a real space in here that we can create uh that creates an environment that we can actually talk about this and, and normalize it that the cycles of addiction and the cycles and the psychology behind repetitive uh Cycles and choices are no different from family members to participants to radio hosts to national program managers to doctors. And you know, we always have behaviors in our life we'd like to improve, and, and really the mechanics of it sometimes is quite the same.
2: Yeah, well, I guess you know, um, Aunt, both Anne and I have come from a family of um alcoholics, um, and Having a, an alcoholic in the family is is very shameful to the family, so the stigma the stigma goes that way as well. So just over to you quickly, Anne, just talking about you know growing up with an alcoholic father, um, the sort of things that you faced,
1: um, or not faced. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, when uh, I was growing up with an alcoholic father, it was in the 70s. Um, and it was long before there was any talk at all in public about mental illness or addiction. Um, and, you know, people would people would just be called a drunk. And it was and as, as um, Dan saying it, you know, had very negative um, connotations. I uh, didn't ever talk about that outside of my family so I dealt with what was going on inside the house and then outside uh, among my friends or or teachers or whatever um, that was just not mentioned and uh, uh, within the family there was a lot of signals uh, mainly from my mother that this was shameful and we would get pushed out of the way and kept kept out of situations um and finally, I you know later on, when I was older, I used to uh, call my father when he was drunk an alcoholic because I thought that was a a warning to him that he could become an alcoholic. <laughs> um, so that that's how much um, stigma stigma and ignorance there was about it back then.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, So, Dan, do you want to talk a bit more about um, how reducing the stigma helps people in recovery, in in smart recovery?
0: Well, I think, um, as I just briefly referenced there, um, the stigmatization around uh, addiction and and the World Health Organization uh, did a cross-cultural study in 14 countries and examined the most 18 of the most stigmatised addictions being criminal, HIV positive, homelessness, and drug addiction was ranked as the most stigmatising addiction. And alcohol, I think, was ranked fourth. Now, I guess that's because we are told certain things by the media. We're told that we call these people that and this and that and this and that. And I think it's really important to create a space where we can start talking about this in a different way because Uh, The research shows that that stigma that's attached to those labels and those mindsets actually hinders people at least five to six years from receiving help. Um, And we can find you sources for that. Um, We've got lots of sources that um, back up a lot of these um, statistics around around our campaign. And if we can just try and create a space where people don't feel like they're Shame, ashamed of their dad, or they don't feel the need to shame themselves because these labels are pigeonholing them into a certain mindset that we're indoctrined for decades to think. Then we can create a space where people are feeling uh, not embarrassed to, to walk into a, a smart meeting or to a doctors and say, Look, I've got some behaviours that I'm engaging in that I'd like to stop and I'd like to find more positive behaviours. Uh, to improve my life, improve my well-being, improve my family's life and contribute to community again.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is really good and it's uh, um, I guess anything that can shorten the duration of somebody suffering from abuse of alcohol or drugs or food uh, is really important because it makes them more productive um, in society. Um, and so it's, it, it's, a, it's a win-win in real terms. The individual gets their life back, but society right. reduces the cost uh, right. to them. Um, and, the,
0: and the thing with Smart Recovery is what I, and what, I, what I really loved about it when I came on board five years ago is that in, in smart meetings, you can have uh, – I've had someone in my meeting up in Brisbane, a 19-year-old methamphetamine user sleeping on the streets, Right. you maybe consider the stereotypical for the want of a better word addict right i don't like even calling that but sitting across the room from him you have a director of a successful logistics company in brisbane and this guy 18 year old methamphetamine user sleeping on the streets is giving this guy advice on how to deal with peer pressure or stress so when we create a space we talk about common things, peer pressure, urges, cravings, developing a healthier structure in your day, making better choices, challenging unhelpful negative thinking, all of these things is is what every one of us deal with every single day. So when we move away from that substance itself and look at the constructs and and the framework of how we get involved in addictive cycles and why we make these choices, we're all just looking for the same thing, identity, belonging, purpose meaning connection in life and it's amazing to see that happening and that is stigma being removed when this guy at this director of a logistics company would probably walk past this homeless guy and scoff at him he's sitting there taking advice from him it was amazing to watch
2: yeah yeah i think that's a good thing about recovery that everybody benefits from somebody getting well
0: yeah, I probably need to attend Smart Recovery from my stand-standing YouTube addiction at the moment. <laughs> I'm spending a little bit more time on YouTube, and uh, you know, it, but it's funny thing though. I'm not to challenge myself. Even though I'm 20 years down from heroin, I'm still having to apply the same principles. I want to be present with my kids, and I want to be engaged with my kids. But if I'm stuck on my phone all the time, is that a good demonstration of self-management and control? Is that what I want them to do? I'm giving them a hard time to get off tech. I'm sitting doing it myself, so I've got to challenge myself. Yeah. The cycles are still there, and we all have them, no matter who, where you are in life.
2: Yes, you're right. Okay. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Smart Recovery Australia, you can visit smartrecoveryaustralia.com.au for details and meetings and contact information, or you can call them directly on, in Sydney on 02 5100. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Dan for sharing his Smart Recovery Australia experience with us. Thanks very much, Dan.
0: Thank you, Bill. And just to add, if you want to take your own challenge, takeonaddiction.org.au and please support. You've only got about a week left to jump on board and support either donating to others or taking on your own challenge. So thanks for having us on board again, Bill. It's been a pleasure.
2: No worries. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Uh, next week we'll be joined by Effie Mariatis and Dr. Michael Maloney from the Melbourne Clinic and we'll be talking about detox, rehab and clinical services available to assist recovery from alcoholism and addiction. Uh, coming up next we've got Balamoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Teligam Choco Edwards. Uh, you can join Choco on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening, stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out we've got a song called... Lighten My Load by The Ironing Maidens.
3: I could bake you cake all day I could put the laundry away I could do the dishes, forget about my wishes And clean my dreams away Or you could meet me halfway at home You could sit and listen to me moan can take the basket, write yourself a task list, and decide which detergent is the go. Lighten my load, lighten my load, cause I got shit to do, and need some help from you.